Hello, and welcome to today's VJ Humong podcast. We are a global open access video journal bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. This podcast series will feature selected sessions from the 19th International Workshop on Non-Hodgkin Lymphoma, which was held in Barcelona, Spain. In this session, you will hear from experts Lara Pascalucci, Jessica Ockerson, and David Qualls, who explore the optimal management of relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma. I'm Laura Pasqualucci from the Institute for Cancer Genetics at Columbia University in New York. And I'm here at the 19th IWNHL meeting, which is held in Barcelona, Spain. I'm joined by my colleagues, Dr. Jessica Okosun from the Barts Cancer Institute in the UK, where she's an assistant professor with a long research interest in follicular lymphoma, and Dr. David Qualls from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, where he's a clinical oncologist. So we just came out of a very interesting session that was focused on follicular lymphoma management. I think this was quite an important topic because follicular lymphoma is an indolent disease, uh, yet uh, there's a group of patients uh, who do not respond to therapy and particularly relapse uh, within 24 months from uh, initiation of therapy or transform into a more aggressive diffuse large piece of lymphoma who continue to represent an unmet clinical challenge. So the understanding of the pathogenesis and biology of this disease and possibly the identification of factors that may help us identify patients who are at early risk of failure will be critical for better management of these diseases. So Jessica, you were the first to speak. You gave us a very interesting overview on uh, the role of uh, mutations in histone chromatin modifier genes, uh, which uh, we've learned are genetic hallmarks of the disease. Uh, can you give us a high level summary of your presentation? Uh, thanks very much, Laura. Um, so, so I was tasked with focused, um, you know, try to tell the audience what we've learned so far, our understanding of these sort of mutations in epigenetic alterations of follicular lymphoma. I think what we know from the sequencing studies over the last decade is that many patients, as many as 90, perhaps even 100% of patients have mutations in perhaps one or two or more of these um, uh, mutations in histone modifiers in particular. And there are specific ones, KMT2D, CREBP, and EZH2, and they are mutated at very different frequencies. But what we now understand is that, um, that we have a better understanding of the biology of what these individual mutations are doing in the context of the pathogenesis of disease. And I guess the next questions are, could we target these um, mutations? And we're starting to see that with um, epigenetic therapies, like, for example, tazimetastat that has been FDA approved for patients with mutations in, in you know, EZH2. So, um, and so I think that the, some of the next steps is trying to understand what is the role of kind of epigenetic therapies, particularly given the sort of central role of these epigenetic alterations in the pathogenesis of follicular lymphoma. And uh, David, you gave also a very intriguing talks uh, on uh, possible new approaches uh, for synergy in follicular lymphoma patients. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that? 
Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. So, um, you know, for many years now, we've had sort of established therapies in the front line for follicular lymphoma, often involving uh, chemoimmunotherapy using a chemotherapy background, either CHOP or bendamustine, uh, with an anti-CD20 like bendamustine or rituximab. Um, but more recently, we've developed a number of newer generation therapies, especially in the relapsed and refractory setting, um, that have uh, that have really advanced our treatment in that area, and we're now trying to determine how best to combine those therapies or how best to sequence those therapies moving forward. Um, and one of the keys to that is really developing or understanding the mechanisms of actions of these therapies. And um, there's an array of different options now. We discussed the epigenetic therapies, things like tazimetastat. Um, there are also targeted therapies, PI3 kinase inhibitors, though those have been withdrawn from the market to some degree. Um, there's also been development of novel uh, immunotherapies like bispecific antibodies. CAR T cells, um, and then there are a number of things on the uh, on the horizon, including uh, agents that engage or block uh, CD forty seven and uh, bring uh, uh, macrophages into the play and everything else. And, and these therapies interact in a number of different ways. So I discussed how those interact in, within the T cell synapse um, and how they can potentially uh, improve the efficacy of one another for our patients. And Jessica, back to you. Uh, where do you think we stand in terms of translating these findings on epigenetic mutations of KMT2D and CREBP? We know a lot has been done for these two mutations, but where do you think uh, yeah. we are? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, as, as David has alluded to already, there are lots of um, other therapies, particularly immunotherapies, that have um, very high efficacy. So the question is, where is the place of these epigenetic therapies when there are already existing therapies that are coming through? I think one thing that I would say that what we've learned from the biology is most of these epigenetic alterations are very early, very clonal events, and they we think that they reside within this sort of reservoir population that may be responsible for the disease coming back. So potentially, if you had therapies that could target this epigenetic therapies, it may go some way in reducing the risk of relapse, perhaps curing some patients. So I think that, um, you know, uh, my opinion is that the place of these kind of epigenetic therapies may be more in combination with these immunotherapies. I feel there's a role in and they may have a role in perhaps eradicating this kind of reservoir repopulating population that we are that is very elusive to to eradicate with our current standard therapies. I agree. <laughs> and uh, along these lines, actually, David, uh, you you had very interesting uh, results on uh, the ability to induce expression of CD58. Um, can you? Sure. Expand on that. Yeah, so, um, yeah, happy to. Um, so one of the things that we uh, uh, that I reviewed was a, a recent study looking at uh, the com uh, looking at using tazimetastat as an EZH2 inhibitor, um, and by inhibiting EZH2, we essentially unblock the expression of certain genes. Um, one of those being CD58, which is um, an important ligand uh, in developing the T cell synapse with follicular lymphoma cells, and it, is, it essentially engages CD2 uh, on the surface of follicular lymphoma and helps build a stronger synapse and binding between the two cells. Um, and, and we know that loss of CD58 has been associated with worse outcomes in certain lymphomas. So by upregulating CD58 expression, we may be uh, uh, stabilizing that synapse um, and further allowing T cells to, to exert cytotoxic functions on follicular lymphoma cells. So it may have a unique opportunity to work aside other agents like bispecifics or lenalidomide that further potentiate T cell activity against follicular lymphoma uh, to improve patient outcomes. And I guess uh, in these settings, you would want to screen patients for the presence of 
mutations or genetic alterations in CD58, so which yeah, yeah. may represent a group of patients uh, not responding to this effect. Definitely, yeah, that was something that uh, they saw in the study as well, is that uh, CD58 mutations, if that was present, obviously, then you're not going to be able to express that. So I think that targeted approaches and understanding the, the genomic changes for these follicular lymphomas is gonna be very important going forward. So one question that came up during the discussion actually was Jessica, I think, and it's maybe more general in terms of uh, epigenetic therapies is uh, whether you would see this as a sequential treatment uh, uh, whereby the, the epigenetic agents would be used first uh, and then maybe followed by immune therapies. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting idea and one that should be explored more. You potentially get that CD58 expression. You also may get more antigen presentation in general via MHC-dependent mechanisms. Um, there's some evidence to show that in DLBCL. It may also be true in follicular lymphoma, um, in which case you may get different immune um, uh, response to the, to the follicular lymphoma after that. And I think there was some uh, recent uh, data out of the Green Lab as well that showed that EZH2 mutant follicular lymphomas tend to influence the mi microenvironment uh, differently in FL. And so, you know, whether inhibiting EZH2 in that kind of setting would change the, the microenvironment in a way that makes it more amenable to other immunotherapies, I think that's something that would be really uh, interesting going forward here. So maybe one quick and last question for you, Jessica. Uh, what do you think uh, a clinician should do nowadays when they yeah. see a follicular lymphoma patient? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think in a way it sort of speaks to uh, Dr. Jill Sal's talk, which is, you know, how do you sequence therapies? How do you, you know, use all these drugs? How do you use all the biology? Um, I think where we are currently is that we have a better understanding, certainly from a genetic perspective, when we probably still lack information from the microenvironment perspective, we need, probably need to bring that together. Um, we've long focused on prognostic tools, and I think that we probably need to move away from prognostic tools, and we probably need to be looking at maybe more predictive tools, because there's so many drugs out there. How do we get the right drug to the right patients? And I think we need to try and understand the biology of responders to these novel therapies versus those that are resistant. Um, and so I think that going forward, I think a lot of the clinical trials has to try to address this, you know, parallel correlative questions as we are asking clinical tr questions. We should also be asking biological questions as well. I think, still think we're quite far away from bringing the biology or for, from a clinician perspective. I don't think there is any role currently of using NGS apart from may perhaps selecting patients for EZH2 inhibitors. But um, aside from that, we're not quite there yet in terms of using the biology in a cl clinical setting currently. That's very true. So I think uh, we, we can uh, stop here. I want to thank you very much for speaking and giving very enlightening talks today. And thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJ Humonk and subscribe to VJ Humonk podcasts on Spotify, Apple and Podbean. See you next time.